few years ago, during one of our first trips up to the area to check everything out, my wife and our two, our two uh, sons at the time were four and six, we're all up, and one afternoon we were hanging out with Ray Leonardson, who we reaffirmed as an elder here at Lakeside uh, last week, and we were hanging out for the day, and we went to Culver's uh, for lunch. And while we're in Culver's, all of a sudden I hear Ray say, hey guys, cut it out. And I turn around and I find my six-year-old has my four-year-old in a headlock, and he's getting ready to punch him in the face. Uh, which is really just standard fare when you have brothers, and uh, that's, I, I think it's good for them. Brooke doesn't understand it for the life of her. She's like, why do they have to fight? To which I respond, they don't really need a reason. They're just brothers, and, and that's, that's what they like to do. But we got them separated. We got our food. They got custard. They calmed down. Everything was fine. We got back in the car, and if you don't know Ray, Ray just has a heart for kids. He, he loves kids. He just loves kids, and he was, he was next, to, next to our two boys, and he said, Hey, guys, you want to sing a song? And there was silence. There was nothing. They, they didn't say anything, and so Ray picked back up. He's like, You know, we could sing Jesus Loves Me, or we could sing Father Abraham, and then my oldest, without missing a beat, goes, Or we could sing a good song, and I'm like, What? They're like, What? <laughs> Like want to pull them aside and be like, buddy, they're, they're talking to me to see if, if it's the right fit for me to come be a pastor. Maybe they don't want the pastor's son to be like, oh, Jesus loves me and Father Abraham. Those aren't good songs, but not about a good song. But I didn't have the chance to pull them aside and have that conversation. So he says, how about a good song? And then without pausing or, or missing any, any beats whatsoever, my oldest goes, like Uptown Funk. And Ray... <laughs> Ray goes, I, uh, I, don't, I don't know Uptown Funk. And there my six-year-old, right next to Ray. This hit is Ice Cold, Michelle Pfeiffer, that white gold. This for them hood girls, them good girls, straight masterpieces. Styling, wild, and living it up in the city. I got Chuck song with St. Laurent. I'm going to kiss myself, I'm too pretty. And I'm like, all right, that's enough. <laughs> and Ray's like, yeah, I don't really know that song. And my oldest is like, well, if you want to sing a song, that's a good song. <sighs> Pray for us, please. We pulled him aside. We all know the difference. We all know the difference in what we like. We know the difference in what we like. And I'm not saying Jesus loves me and Father Abraham aren't good songs. They're just not my kids' favorites. And we all know the difference between what we think is just okay and what we really like. We all know the difference between pizza and good pizza. We all know the difference between tickets and good tickets. We all know the difference between an outcome of a game and a good outcome of a game when Tom Brady's crying and freezing and the Packers are going to the Super Bowl. We all know the difference between things that are all right and things that are good. And this morning, as we continue looking at the I Am statements of Jesus, if you have your phones or your tablets, we'd invite you to follow along with us in John 10. We're going to do a continuation on what we saw last week when Jesus said, I am the door, and he brought in this analogy of him being the guard of the sheep pen. And today he continues that as he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And that's where we'll start this morning in John 10, verse 11. 
where we read these words from Jesus speaking. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm fascinated by this concept. I'm fascinated by this idea that Jesus didn't just say, I am the shepherd, but he said, I am the good shepherd. And I think one of the things we need to do right now is just pause and reflect and remind ourselves on this truth that our God is a good God. He's a good God. And when times, are, when times are great and we experience God's blessing, that's something that's really easy for us to wrap our arms around, wrap our minds around, and for us to embrace. When things are going well for us and we're in the season of blessing, when we're on those mountaintops, it's easy for us to cry out, God is so good. And the tragedy of that is oftentimes when the blessing first happens and when we first experience it, it is something that we cry out and we do say, God is so good. But as time goes by and we grow accustomed to what God has done and it becomes normal, we lose sight of just how, just how blessed we are and we, we just kind of stop crying out that God is so good. But the good God in the moments of blessing is the same God who's there with us when we are fighting the toughest battle of our life, when we are in the deepest and the darkest valley that we will ever experience, God is still good and His character does not change because our circumstances change. The God who is good when the test results come back from the doctor in the way that we had hoped, in the way that we had prayed, is still a good God when the test results come back from a doctor in a way that we hadn't hoped, in a way we hadn't prayed. God does not change because our circumstances do. And in the midst of a time that's been incredibly trying for a number of people, and in a season where it's been incredibly difficult and incredibly hard, we just need to pause and we need to reflect and be reminded once again that the God we serve is a good God. And our circumstances do not change that fact, and that doesn't cease to exist because we find ourselves in difficult circumstances or in seasons of difficulty, that God is good, and He makes it a point to bring about to bring up His goodness when He says, I am the good shepherd. He could have left it at just shepherd, I am the shepherd, but He doesn't do that. Jesus makes it a point to remind us that the character of our God is that He is a good God. And what's one of the reasons that our God is a good God? Well, Jesus says He is willing to lay down His life for His sheep. He's willing to lay down His life for His sheep. And as we saw last week, Jesus talked about the fact that there is an adversary, there is a thief who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but that he is the door to the sheep pen. And now he says, I am the good shepherd. He, and what is one of the reasons for that? He's willing to lay down his life for his sheep. And we're going to see the threats that come about as he continues. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. So just as we saw last week that there is an existential threat 
to the sheep, and that is a thief who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus is bringing in yet another wrinkle to this, and he says, I'm not acting like a hired hand, but I am the shepherd, and I am the good shepherd who's willing to lay down my life for the sheep. That God knows us intimately. He knows us intimately, which means God knows every regret and mistake that we've made which means God is intimately aware of that thing that still plagues our hearts and our minds, that we would do anything to go back and change, but we can't. And God has seen us at our ugliest. He's seen all of the mistakes that we've made. He's seen all of our messes, and God has seen it. He knows it intimately, and yet He still loves us so much so that He is willing to die for us. That in the midst of all those mistakes and all of our shortcomings, in the midst of all that, God is not repelled by us, but God still longs to have relationship with us to the point that he lays down his life to pay the price for my mistakes and my sin and your mistakes and your sin. That is the God we serve. That is his goodness on full display. And now he's talking about the fact that there are wolves that are prowling, that are prowling around and they want to come and they want to steal the sheep and they want to destroy the sheep. But Jesus, he acts like an owner. He acts like an owner, not like a hired hand. And if you own a small business, chances are you've had a talk with your employees at some point that you want them to treat their jobs like they are the owners themselves. Or maybe you've worked for somebody who owns a small business and they've told you that. They've had that conversation with you. We don't want you to just act like you're working here. We want you to act like you own the place. Because there's something different when you own something, when you have skin in the game, when it's your time and your tears and your sweat equity and your money. You care about it more, you just do, than when you just go and are a hired hand somewhere and get a paycheck. And if you want people to treat your business like it's their own, the only way that can possibly succeed is if you have a profit-sharing program of some kind where the employees actually are compensated like the owners. Otherwise, the programs and the systems never work. And that doesn't mean that your employees are bad people. It just means the dynamic is different when you are an owner. You just care more. It was our first brand new car. Brooklyn had just gotten a job. I had a full-time job. We'd just gotten married a few months before. We needed a second car. We went and we got a brand new car. And we had a long conversation before we got the brand new car of, I love my wife dearly. I love her. She's an incredible woman. She is cursed when it comes to vehicles. It doesn't matter what, like if she touches a vehicle, something's going to go wrong with it. So if you have a really nice car, I would encourage you to be cautious if you even let her ride in it. I'm just, I'm just saying, I love her very much. She's just cursed. It's just the, just, the way that, just the way that it is. So we had a long talk and I decided, no, 
I'm, I'm going to give my wife the new car. I'm going to let her drive it around. Six weeks into having the new car, a priest in a Walmart parking lot rear-ended the car, and it was wrecked six weeks into having it. And after that, she said, I'm cursed. Why don't you just drive it? And I was like, hallelujah, that's an answer to prayer. I'm glad she arrived at that conclusion on her own, but I will. A few weeks later, the older car that we had just stopped running while she was driving it on the interstate. So I'm like, nope, you're going to drive the new one. So if somebody's stranded, it's going to be me. And I'm happy to report we didn't have any other problems until we went on vacation. And we got a place at the beach that was in a, a condo place, and you had a certain number of parking spots. And they're assigned, and you can only have a certain number of vehicles there per how many people were in the condo. And our parking spot was right next to a cement wall. And so I, I asked her, I said, would you be all right with climbing over the console every time we get in and out of the car? And she's like, I'll be careful, I promise. So I was a little nervous about this, but I decided, all right, I got to let go of some things. So all week long, we didn't have a problem until it was time to leave. We had everything packed in the trunk, and there was one bag left that she wanted to get in a certain way in the car. And as she opened the passenger side, I put my hand between the door and the cement wall to give it a buffer. And when I did that, it just prevented the door from opening quite enough, just quite enough for her to get the one bag she wanted to get in the car, in the car. And she said, could you just move your hand? And I said, could you just get in the other side, climb over the console, put it here, it'll be fine. She's like, it's going to be a lot easier if we just do it here. So could you just move your hand? I'll be careful, I promise. And I'm like, it's going to mess. She's like, nothing's going to get messed up. I took my hand away. She was incredibly careful. She opened the car door. She put her bag in. She shut the door. And there it was, a scuff in the paint. It was about, it was about half the width and half the length of my pinky. Nobody else would ever see it in a million years, but I saw it because I knew exactly where that car door was resting against the cement wall, and so helped me. Half the width of my pinky and half the length of my pinky, there was a scratch, just like I knew there would be a scratch. A few weeks after that, we took a student trip. I was a student pastor at the time. We took a week-long trip to Dallas, Texas, one day, we spent all day at the Six Flags over Arlington. We told the students before they got off the bus, eat dinner in the park. Eat dinner in the park. We're not stopping anywhere else for dinner, so make sure you eat lunch and dinner in the park. Literally told every student as they're walking off the bus that. 50 times we repeated it. Eat dinner in the park. Eat dinner in the park. Eat dinner in the park. By the 10th or 12th person, they're like saying it back. That's like they're, you know, they're a little rebellious. We got it. We know. We got it. Park's closing down. We meet at the bus. We're pulling out a few minutes after 10 o'clock. Hear from somebody, hey, I'm hungry. I'm like, did you eat dinner? I'm like, no. I'm like, well, this is a life lesson for you. You're going to have to learn to listen to instructions when you're given. That's great. person sitting next to him, I didn't eat either. I'm like, well, I mean, there's always a couple in a crowd, right? There's always a couple in a crowd. 35 of the 50 students didn't eat dinner that night in the park. <laughs> and that's where I realized, parents, it's not you. It's not your fault. Teenagers just don't listen. It's not on you, all right? Just accept it, embrace it, and move on. 35 out of 50. So now I've got a problem. 
I've got to feed these people. And then some of the ones that ate dinner are like, well, I'm hungry because they're teenagers and they can eat all the time. So we took a 15-passenger van to Texas with us to load up equipment and everything that we would use. So once we got back to the hotel, I got in the 15-passenger van and I found the only restaurant that was open and it was a McDonald's that night. McDonald's was open and I got in the drive-thru and I ordered 150 cheeseburgers and 75 orders of fries. And I will not repeat to you what the fine people who were working at the Arlington McDonald's said to me that night because it was profane. And after they said, are you joking? And I assured them, no, I'm dead serious. I need 150 cheeseburgers and 75 orders of fries. There was silence. They said, give us a few minutes. It took them seven minutes to come back on the intercom and say, all right, we can accommodate your order. Well, other people in the line were asking what was going on, and when they found out, one of them had gotten their, had gotten their drink in their sauce packet, but they hadn't gotten their food. They, they get out of their car, and they throw the sauce packet at us like it's our fault. So I've got sauce packets being thrown at me. I've ordered 150 cheeseburgers and 75 orders of fries. I'm tired. If you've ever been to Texas in the middle of summer, then you have accepted Jesus because you've been given a prequel to hell, and you know I want no part of that. It is hot, and it is miserable, and I'm tired, and I've got sauce packets being thrown at me. And so I make the turn in the drive-thru, and I just hear the scraping. And there's a giant yellow, it's painted yellow, <laughs> cement pole that helps you know to stay where you need to stay in the drive-thru. And I've just scraped about five feet of the 15-passenger van, about, about, I don't know, six inches long, like up to bottom, five feet long around the side of the van, just a giant scrape that puts our minuscule scrape on our civic door that is half the width and half the length of my pinky into perspective. And I was, I was upset that I did it, but I didn't really care. And the reason I didn't care, it's not my van. It was a rental. And because it was, because it was a corporation rental, we got that overpriced insurance that everybody tells you, don't worry about getting that insurance when you rent the car. Your credit card's going to give you the same coverage anyway. But because it's a corporation, we had that insurance, which meant I could have totaled that sucker. And as long as I tossed him the keys, we were completely covered. It's not like I tried to wreck the van, but I didn't really care about the scratch in the van because I didn't own it. Understand the picture that Jesus is using here. That God loves you to the point that he is invested in your life. He's not a distant deity who doesn't care about you. That God is intimately involved in every aspect and every area of your life. He's seen the mess that you've made. He's seen the mistakes that you've made. And he loves you anyway. He knows us intimately and he still desires a relationship with us and he cares for us that's the god that we serve a good god who at the sign of trouble doesn't run who when the going gets hard is right there next to us in the thick of it and who is willing to lay down and sacrifice his life for my stupidity and my mistakes and my regrets and my sin. And he loves me still.
in spite of it all. That is the God we serve, a God who loves us. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says in verse 14. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I laid down my life for the sheep. I know my own, Jesus says, and my own know me. Not just God knowing us, but we as his followers, we should just be excited to learn more about the heart of God. We need to be enthusiastic about getting to to know God on a deeper level. So there needs to be some excitement. There needs to be some initiative in our lives to engage with Scripture, to find ourselves engaging in conversation with God in times of prayer. And it doesn't mean that's always going to come easy or always come naturally. And it doesn't mean there can't be obstacles in our life that come and we go through dry spells. But if it's not something in our lives that is a source of enthusiasm and excitement, and if that's something that, that describes us moving forward, and there's something wrong. And as people who follow him, we need to be excited, not just that God knows us, but we need to be excited about the fact that we get to know God too, that we can get to become more in tune with the heart of God, and we should have a hunger and a desire to learn more and to grow closer to him. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, Jesus says. I bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now, Jesus was Jewish, and the chosen people were the Jews. And so there were some who thought that the Messiah that was promised all throughout the Old Testament was just to deliver the Jews. And Jesus here has a radical statement. He says that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is bigger than a nationality. The kingdom of God is bigger than a segment. That the kingdom of God is universal. That God desires all people of all races and all nations to be his followers. That God desires everyone to follow him. And this was incredibly controversial because there were nationalists and there were people who only wanted the Messiah to look like them and think like them. And what Jesus says here is, no, 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 no. God is something so much bigger than that planned. That God is a God of all people, of all nations, of all races, of all mindsets, of all ideologies. And we find ourselves right now in the midst of tribalism where we want echo chambers and we want everybody to agree with us and we want to dismiss anybody who doesn't think like us. We want to dismiss people that don't agree with us. And he says that the cause of Jesus, my cause is bigger than any one ideology. My cause is available to all people. And this must be a call for all of us who follow Jesus to be a unifying force. That we look at how divided our world is. We look at how divided our country is. And we say, no, we will disagree with people on on substance. We will disagree with people on issues. But we will do so without becoming disagreeable, that we as people who follow Jesus will keep at the forefront of our minds the fact that there is nothing, there is nothing more important than the fact that we follow Jesus and we desire others to follow Jesus as well. So we can engage with people who disagree with us and we can love people who follow Jesus who disagree with us all the more. And it doesn't mean that we can't discuss things with them. It doesn't mean we can't even 
have healthy debate with them. But at the end of the day, we will keep at the forefront what ultimately matters. And that is the fact that we are citizens of heaven first and foremost. And the cause of Jesus is greater than any other ideologies we may have. That we must be people. We must be people as followers of Jesus who unify, who come together, and who can disagree with others without becoming disagreeable, which means we will love people on the right, we will love people on the left, and that we can stop just having to feel like we have to cut everyone out of our lives who doesn't agree with us. Why? Because Jesus is a unifying, he's a unifying God. And he is our hope, and he is our salvation, and he is available to people on our right, he's available to people on our left, he's available to people on the far right, he's available to people on the far left, and his cause is the greatest cause. And we must be, as people who follow Jesus, one. And we should be unified around the hope that we have in Jesus. For this reason, verse 17 says, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And here Jesus is setting the scene for what he's about to do. He's telling the audience right here, I am going to pay the price. I am going to lay down my life. I am going to die. I'm going to raise again. I'm going to lay down my life, and I am going to take it up again. And I have the authority to do this because I am God. He's setting the scene here for our hope. What may sound bleak in the fact that he's saying, I will lay down my life, is a reminder to us of just how good our God is. That there is a price and there is a penalty for our sin. And that price is death. But God has paid that price for us. And Jesus says, I will lay down my life. But he's also setting the scene for the greatest victory that has ever been experienced, and a victory we all will experience one day for those who follow him. That death is no longer the final word. That death doesn't get the final statement. And every time I see somebody grieve death who doesn't have the hope of Jesus, I grieve that much more. Death is never easy, and the reason that death is never easy is because death is foreign to the original concept and plan of God. Death was not introduced Death was not introduced into our existence until after sin had come into the picture. It is foreign to the concept and the plan and the purpose of God. It's a result of sin. And that is why death is always painful, even for those who have the hope of Jesus. But when those grieve who have no hope, there is nothing more bitter. There's nothing more depressing than that. And yet, none of us has to experience that. None of us has to face that. Because the hope of Jesus is that, yes, he laid down his life, but yes, he took it up again so we all could experience hope and that death no longer has the final word. 
And what's the response to this amazing news? What's the response to the fact that we have a God who loves us, that's concerned with our lives, who's an integral part in our lives, who cares about us, that's a good God? What's the response to the fact that death no longer has the final word? Well, we're told it in verses 19 and 20. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Check that out. The response to Jesus saying God is a good God. The response to Jesus saying death doesn't win. Are a number of people saying, I don't believe him. I don't believe him. And not only saying I don't believe him, but saying he's demonic and insane. The message of a good God, a message of hope, a message of love would be received by people who say, Jesus is demonic, he's insane, and he doesn't know what he's talking about, so why listen to him? And this is just a sobering reminder to us all that there are those who will hear of the hope of Jesus and will not believe and will not understand. And will not accept it. And if this is where John 10 ended, I can make an argument this is one of the most depressing passages in all of Scripture. But it's not. And this is our hope. In verse 21, we read these words. Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So while some dismissed it and some said he's insane, he's demonic, he doesn't know what he's talking about, others saw and experienced the truth. I just want to remind you, we cannot control the response of anyone. And God has not called us to. It is not our obligation to worry about how anyone responds to the hope of Jesus. What we must do then is share it often. Share the hope of Jesus often. Because we already know that it's not going to be universally accepted, which means all the more. We just share it more. Because there are going to be some who reject it, but there are going to be some who get it and whose lives and eternities are transformed forever. And God could choose to use us in that process. So we don't become discouraged when somebody says, that's not for me or I don't believe it. No, 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 no. We're encouraged all the more that we have another opportunity with somebody else to share with them the hope of what Jesus has done for us, the hope of who Jesus is, the fact that we have a God who's a good God a God who loves us, a God who laid down his life for us, a God who knows us, a God who cares about us. All of that, we just share. How do we do that? Well, by first, sharing your story. Just share your story. If God's blessed you, talk about it. And that doesn't have to be a humble brag. Just talk about what God's done. If you're struggling, talk about it. Talk about, just share your story with people that God is there in the good times and he's there in the bad. And here's what we do know because God is good. Because God is good, we can be confident in his purpose and his plans for our lives. Because God is good, we can be confident in his purpose and his plans for our lives. And when things are going great, that's easy to accept. 
that's easy to embrace. And when things are challenging, that can be incredibly hard. And I just want to encourage you, if you find yourself there right now, if you find yourself in a really tough season, if you find yourself in challenging circumstances, I just want to remind you that God is good and he has a plan and he has a purpose for your life. Don't give up and don't quit. And I know you may not see it today. You may not see it a year from now. You may not see it two years, five years, even a decade from now. But know this, that the good God that we serve, who knows you and loves you, has a plan in store for your life, that he cares for you and he is good. We can be confident of his purpose. We can be confident of his plans for us. That because God is good, we are given something we could never earn. Because God is good, we are given something we could never earn in our salvation. There is nothing we can do to earn it. It is God's gift to us. And because he's good, he's given us that. And because God is good, he's given us a choice. Because God is good, he's given us a choice. Which means we have free will. God doesn't require that we must Follow him. That in God's goodness, he's given each and every one of us the choice to make up our own minds and to make our own decision. And while the heart of God is that all would follow him, God has given us the ability to make that decision on our own. A good God has given us free will, which will in turn mean that there are some who reject the very idea of being loved by the good God who's given them the choice to make up their own minds. So what do we do with all of this? And how does this impact our lives? Well, first, I just want to encourage you again, tell your story. Tell your story. Share it. Share the reason you have hope in your life. If you're, if you're going through good times, share your blessing. Share what God's done. Share why that blessing doesn't define you. Share why that blessing isn't your end-all, be-all, why all your hope isn't in that blessing. If you find yourself in the deepest and darkest valley you've ever experienced, tell your story to somebody. Walk through life together. It's okay to say, I don't know how God's going to get me through this. I don't know what God's doing. But I trust He's good. And I trust He's there. And sometimes if somebody tells you their story, you'll be quick with an encouraging word that God's given you on your heart. And I just encourage you, if that's the case, then just encourage them. And sometimes when somebody's telling you their heart-wrenching story, you'll be desperately desiring God to put something on your heart that you can say to encourage them, and it will not come. And I'm just begging you, just shut up, please, because you might try to force it. And if you do, you'll say one of the dumbest things ever. And if somebody's really going through a hard time, they don't need that. and They're just going to be confused or like, oh, that was really dumb, but I don't know because I'm going through a really hard time, so maybe I'll try. So I'm just encouraging if God puts something there that's true and good, then share it by all means, but don't force it. It's enough sometimes just to listen and to give somebody a hug or a fist bump or a socially distanced wave, whatever you're doing right now. But we just need each other. Tell your story. Next, I, I tell you, just invite a friend into, into what God's done in your life. Invite a friend into that by telling them your story, by sharing your faith. Again, you don't have to have all the answers you just have to have a reason for the hope that you have. 
We have a good God, a God who loves us, a God who knows us, a God who's involved in our lives, and we live in a broken world that needs this hope, that needs this love, that needs an encounter with God. So I'm challenging you this week to think of three people, a family member, a friend, and anybody else that God puts on your heart and on your mind. And to commit to praying for those three people who you know do not have a relationship with Jesus, who need to have a relationship with Jesus, who need to experience the life change and have their eternal destiny altered. I, I'm encouraging you to make a commitment this week to pray once a day for those three people. And be careful when you do this, by the way, because God's answer, answer to that prayer just might be you telling your story and sharing with them the hope that you have. But in a minute, I'm going to pray. And we're going to start off by all of us individually, just silently in our hearts and in our heads, lifting up those three people. And then after that, I'll pray some more things, and then we'll sing a couple more songs. I just want to encourage you to be lifting up people who need to experience the goodness of the God we serve and need to experience salvation and to be praying for them that they might experience the hope that we have. God, we come before you and we thank you for being a good God who loves us and a God who's given us hope. So Lord, right now, collectively, we are all going to lift up individuals in our hearts and in our heads. And Lord, we do so with confidence that while there are many of us praying in this room and online, that you hear each of our prayers. So, Lord, right now we pray for a member of our families who needs you. Lord, we uplift a friend right now to you who needs to give their lives to you as well. And now, Lord, we pray for somebody else that you've put in our hearts and our minds who needs you. Thank you for being a good God. God who loves us, God who cares about us. God, who's willing to lay down his life for us so that we could experience hope. I pray, God, that we would see people respond to you. And while we know there will be some who reject you and there will be some who say, I don't get it, it's not for me. Our prayer, God, is that we'll also see those who say, I get it, and I need a Savior. That we'll see people make those decisions here at Lakeside. We'll see the people in the lives of those who, who are part of Lakeside make those decisions. 
And you'll use us for your glory. Thank you for being good.